Well, good morning, everyone. Go ahead and open your Bible to a couple places today. Romans 1, Galatians 2. I'll explain in just a moment. Romans 1, Galatians 2. Over the last two weeks, we began by saying that at the inception of the church, the Holy Spirit was poured out on all who would believe. That was Pentecost. And it was at Pentecost that the Great Commission began to be fulfilled, that Great Commission that we were to make disciples of every tribe, baptizing them in the name of the triune God and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. At the end of last week, we put up a statement that is really just a paraphrase of the Great Commission. And we can put that up now. And that statement was this, as as tight as we could be, it was this, to make and to live as disciples to the glory of God. And they will have that on the screen for you in just a minute. To make and live as disciples to the glory of God, that we collectively, our mission as a church is that we make disciples, that's what we're in the business of doing, but we also each individually have a responsibility to live like Christians. It's not something the organization does Every single one of us are called to live out our faith, and if you live out your faith, you will be making disciples. It's a corporate responsibility and an individual responsibility, and we do it not for the fame of Bethesda, for my name or for your name, but for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And so, as tight as we can make that, make and live as disciples, making disciples, we're living as disciples to the glory of God. Today, what we want to do is then ask the question, building off of that statement, that last part of the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and say, okay, what is the message of Jesus? What is it that we are all about? What's that central message that drives us? I would tell you it would be the gospel, Some of you are looking at me this morning going, he's not wearing a tie, he's not wearing a collared shirt. What am I wearing? I'm wearing a shirt from a buddy of mine back in California, Tony. He would always say, preach the gospel, sing the gospel. Did I get that order right? Yeah, good. Preach the gospel, sing the gospel, and live out the reality of the gospel, but it looks easier to say, live the gospel. And so I thought it would be fitting to wear this shirt today because of how all-encompassing this message is. But as we ask the question, what is the message that the church preaches, and we say it's, it's the gospel, I think we need to pause and say, how do you know you found a church when, when you see one? Do you know it just by seeing it? What does it look like? How do you know you have a church? I think of the Reformers and the Protestant Reformation, and they said there were three marks to the church. They're really focused on two, but there were three. The marks of a true church are these, the right preaching of God's word, the proper administration of the sacraments. Don't, don't get nervous about that word sacrament. You don't have a Catholic or a Lutheran up here in front of you. We'll explain that word sacrament at a later time. It's all about what you mean by the words you use. And then third, the application or the right application, because it can be wrong application, right application of church discipline. Don't get nervous about that word church discipline. It's a biblical concept. We'll address that in time. And so you know you have a true true church if the word is preached, the sacraments or more commonly for us, we use the word ordinances are done rightly, and the church discipline is applied properly for a pure believer's church. 
And so I want you to consider the significance of these words. If you are not preaching the gospel message, the central word of the gospel, you don't have a true church. So you can have many buildings that have steeples on top of them, say church on the front door. But if this message that we're going to talk about is not proclaimed, you don't have a real church according to the reformers. And so hence the need for us to make sure that we are all on the same page about the central message that we preach. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. Typically, we walk through one passage like we did last week. We zoom in on it. Um, There's so many different passages in the Bible you could go to for this. You could go to John 3, 16. You could go to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Today, we're going to stick with Paul. And what we're going to do is first get some stuff out of the way and say, what's the message that the church should not or does not preach? We'll look at the pastoral epistles briefly. We'll then look at the message that we should preach, secondly, and that will be Romans 1 through 4. We'll do a 20,000-foot overview of that. And then lastly, how should right doctrine impact our culture? Because you can believe the right thing, and still it doesn't permeate your culture and how you live. And we'll look at some, a brief statement in Galatians 2. So let's, let's get into this here. The first one here, the message that the church doesn't preach is that of legalism and uh, I wrote down irreverent silly myths. So I'll show you the passages for that in just a minute. Uh, last week, if you were with us, we got into, uh, we mentioned Jonathan Lehman's uh, little pamphlet, What is the Church's Mission? We'll have several of these copies next week if you want one at the Connection, uh, at the Welcome Center. And if you remember, one of the things that Lehman talked about is he said there's four caricatures of different types of churches who may all have the same statement of faith but their goals demonstrate that they are miles apart from each other. And each of these churches on paper can believe the same thing. They demonstrate it in different ways, but they all deal with fruit issues, fruit problems, but they never get to the root problem. Yet Seeker's Church, Seeker's Church was all about making converts but didn't go into deep discipleship. And over time, you could see that they were, the way they kept people in church was through gimmicks and not the pure word of God. Prosperity church, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that says, if you have enough faith, God will give you these things in order to live a good life. Saw that. Justice church, if you remember, cares about structural injustice, environment, racism, doing good, cares about the downtrodden. We talked about righteous nations church that is the conservative alternative, which cares about structural injustices, but are things like abortion, same-sex marriage, LGBTQ policies, and dealing with those. Religious freedom would matter to Righteous Nations Church. And each of these churches, there's legitimate concerns in each one of these things that you should care about, but they're not the core issue, are sin and rebellion against God that need to be dealt with. They, They can miss that. And so as elders, we were going over this pamphlet several weeks back, and and we said, which of these churches might we be prone to fall into? And their overbalances, the consumerism that can come with Seekers Church, materialism with Prosperity Church, the political progressivism with Justice Church, or the nationalism that can come with Righteous Nations Church. And so we looked at them and we said, okay, there's, there's things we should watch out in each of these churches and the imbalances that, that, that they would not come in here to our church family But as we talked, we thought, we actually think there's a fifth kind of church, and 
This might be the church that we struggle with most, we might be most prone to, and I would call it legalistic church. Legalistic church wants to take God's words seriously and obey it. So the focus is on the rules, the cans and the cannots of the Christian life. Tradition will play a major role so that you don't get swept away with the current of the modern current of whatever's in our culture. And so the upside is there's a commitment to right living. The downside is that the motive is all wrong. The motive is a personal self-justification project to justify yourself either in the eyes of God, others, or just yourself. And so that's, I know that's a little bit heady, or that's, that's a little bit abstract. What does it look like when you meet someone from legalistic church? I'm glad you asked. Okay. They make rules and regulations where God and his word does not. They would never say it. They would never say, I am better than, I am superior than others. They're more clever and they have figured out how to cloak it in Christianese and Christian language. They'll say, do you see that person over there? We should pray for them, right? They'll phrase it that way. The substance of conversation, the more you get to know them, when it turns to, turns to religious matters, will be all about the things that you cannot do. The substance is all about what not to do. And a fixation, we said a comparison with others, what not to say, what places not to go to, what clothes not to wear, what music not to listen to, what things not to view, and so on and on. And ironically, the more you talk to this per- these people, this person from legalistic church, you'll find that they're so concerned with what not to do, and ironically, they have missed the joy of knowing a Savior who's supposedly all-satisfying. You imagine that you're driving up the side of a mountain, and you see the railing on the side. There's a ledge. Would you desire to get closer, as close to the ledge as possible to see how close can I get without falling off, or would you want to hug the mountain to make sure you didn't fall off? I would hope it would be you would want to stay as close to the mountain as possible as you're going up. But the person from legalistic churches is going to be more concerned about parsing out the details about how close you can get to the ledge of sin instead of pursuing the safety and the closeness of being near to Christ. If they do evangelize, they're going to be more concerned about transferring not the gospel message but mere moralism person from legalistic church might have grown up in a home where grace and forgiveness was not talked about in comparison to condemnation and shunning. Approval would be far from this person's, uh, seeking the approval of of this person's parents would be a never-ending task. Same thing with their teachers and Lord forbid their pastor. You might be a part of legalistic church if you've heard the description I just gave and you thought to yourself without any self-reflection, I know somebody who is like that, but didn't look inward and go, that's me, and forgot Luke 18, 11 that says, thank you, Lord, in referring to the Pharisees and their mindset, thank you, Lord, that I am not one of these. If you thought that about somebody else as I gave this description, you, my friend, are part of legalistic church. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, our actions betray us, and we can find ourselves caught up in things that do not matter. Last couple of weeks, I've been reading through the pastoral epistles. 
it is so good as a pastor to read through them. And uh, the pastoral epistles were written to Timothy and to Titus, and Paul gives his instructions to them on what they're supposed to be doing in their local churches. And as I was having a view towards what things should I not be focusing on, I think the Spirit just illuminated several things that I just had not seen as clearly that I just want to share with you. There's nine commands that Paul gives in these letters. I'm not going to read all of them. I'll read some of them, and I think you'll get the hint that they would stay focused and not get distracted. Paul tells Timothy in the beginning of 1 Timothy, he charges them charges him to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. We'll go on later and he'll speak in 1 Timothy 4 against those who prioritize regulations that speak against marriage and speak against uh, certain types of food that's supposed to be eaten. And Paul will say explicitly in First. In verse 7 of chapter 4, have nothing to do with the reverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Y'all in the back should know that passage. My brothers who we've been doing discipleship with. That's our key verse, right? Paul closes his epistle to 1 Timothy. There's more, but I'll give you this one. And he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Don't get distracted, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. It's possible to be on track and then to swerve and get off. In Titus 3.9, I'll give you this last one. Paul gives severe instructions for dealing with people who fall into these irreverent silly myths. And Paul says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. We have a tendency in our devotional reading, I hope we are all doing this, but for those of us who are devotionally reading God's word, we have a tendency to gloss over verses, severe passages like this, where Paul is very blunt about church discipline against those who are causing division. We should not ignore those passages, because when we do, the downside is that we allow corruption of sin in our midst that God does not want for a pure believer's church. We'll come to church discipline. Keep saying that. I'm warning you. It's coming. Avoid irreverent silly myths. Worthless conversations. Paul might say to Bethesda, watch out for those so-called Christian leaders and those with discernment blogs, discernment podcasters, who spend all of their time on the latest Christian controversy at the expense of their own soul. Don't get caught up in the rules and regulations, he might also say, that Christ did not put on you to bear, but that come from your tradition and culture. Discern, look at yourself. Don't get caught up on the bandwagon of the most recent internet conspiracy theory. For those of us who are involved in denominational activity, something that I've been convicted of recently, don't get caught up in denominational squabbles when they happen at the expense of the ministry that is right in front of you in the local church. This is priority number one. 
How can you tell you are not getting distracted by these, these regulations that God did not put on us, these irreverent silly myths, these controversies? You go back to the Great Commission. Ask yourself the question, is what I am focusing and giving my time on, is it helping me to make disciples? If it is not and it is trivial, jettison it. When you let the Great Commission guide you, man, you just don't get sidetracked what is trivial because you're thinking of eternal consequences. You're focused on things that are so much more important. So let us not lose focus and preach what the church was never supposed to preach. By comparison, go to Romans 1. It's a great place to start. Um, if we must be aware of legalistic church in our midst, what is that gospel message that helps us? We, someone asked me the question, what are we talking about at church today, Aaron? And I said, the gospel. And they said, don't we do that every week? No. Yes, we do. Um, but let us go and be specific here. What we're going to do right now, I want to do it intentionally so that not just I, but I find myself saying often, you should go tell people about the hope that is in you. You should share your faith. But I've started to realize, have we been clear enough in saying, here's how to do it? Um, so let me walk you through, through Romans 1 through 4, and we'll see. The gospel is good news. It's the euangelion. It is the, the proclamation that something good has happened. When you think of gospel, you might think of a black gospel choir, perhaps. That's your only reference point. Uh, understand that the gospel is not something that you do. And so, uh, understand, live the gospel really means live in light of the gospel. The gospel is a message and so, if you've ever, ever heard that statement, preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words, that makes no sense when it's a message. It, it is something that has to be communicated or heard. That's what you have when we're talking about this good news. That's by nature what it is. Let me read to you Romans 1, 1 through 4, and this is how the Apostle Paul opens Romans. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. This is the key. What is that gospel? Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You notice some of those key themes that are, that are like in seed form right at the introduction of Romans that Paul will unravel for 11 glorious chapters in Romans 1 through 11 and then apply in Romans 12 through 16. There's a narratival aspect to this. This was a story that began long ago. This was told that this was the son of David who was going to come. There's an overarching story of God's plan of redemption. There is the identity of this one who's not just a man, but the God-man. He is the son of God, eternally from the Father in eternity past, who proceeds from the Father. You can't talk about, you can't talk about the gospel unless you've mentioned resurrection. If you hear someone talking about all the things that the gospel does in your life, but there's no mention of the death and resurrection of Christ. You have, you have missed it. 
And you see that this one who is resurrected from the dead, all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And so he is not only your savior, but he has been declared to be the Lord. And so with that said, Paul will then go on, and after his introductory statements, he'll say in verse 18, and he begins this way, talking about God, and he says, there is a God who we are accountable to, our maker, whom the wrath of God is being poured out on. There is a God, and we're accountable to him. He's then going to talk about the pagans, and he's going to talk about man and his sin. It's the second thing. God and then man's sin. And you see as you read through Romans 1 through 2, there, there is the pagan person who has disobeyed and rebelled against a create, the creator God. And the way he has done that is that he, has, that he has said, everything that you are about, Lord, I will go the opposite way. And what he even does, what is unnatural, the clearest example, by the way, that you will find in Scripture, I believe, right here in Romans, two, uh, Romans 1, the clearest example of rebellion and uncreation right here is homosexual activity. This is not Aaron's word. Hear me seriously. This is God's word right here. This is what he says. And so the result is that God gives them up. God gives them up. God gave them up. And don't think for a minute, just because you may not fall into homosexual sin, that you're in the clear, read the last paragraph of Romans 1, and you'll see that we are all condemned those who covet, those who are envy, who murder, strive, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God. You go on. All Gentiles, pagans are guilty. Romans 2, therefore, you who have no excuse, O man, speaking to the Jew now, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so he goes after the Gentile. He then goes after the Jew and says, you are no better. You are no better. The difference between you and the Gentile is you have the law and yet you still commit the same sin. Romans 2, 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. True, the true Jew is one inwardly. A circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And so the summary of all of this, you go into Romans 3 now. If God is in control, and he is the maker, and we've rebelled, both Jew and Gentile. The result is, what then? Are Jews any better off? Romans 3, 9. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No one, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All are equal at the foot of the judge. Condemned. And so here's the point. You cannot talk, anyone who knows the gospel knows this, you cannot talk about the good news of the gospel unless you first talk about the need for the gospel, the bad news, that we are all rebellious. God is our creator, and we have sinned against this one who we are accountable to. I want you to understand, dear friend, that when you present the gospel to others, there is an offensive nature to what you are saying. You are saying to someone who does not know Jesus that they stand guilty before God, and people don't like to hear that. You may never get to the message about what Jesus has done on the cross because someone may cut you off at this point. 
understand that you cannot present the gospel unless you deal with the sin issue. What is the remedy for the sin issue in which we are condemned for? The answer comes in Romans 3, 21. It comes through Christ. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The bad news is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's the good news, friend, that they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus died, that is history. Jesus died for me, that's doctrine. It comes from Jake Rachel Meachin. The for me is the key. Propitiation, he takes what I deserve and he dies on the cross, sacrificing his life for me so that I would be forgiven of my sin as the wrath of God is poured out on him. And so as the wrath of God is poured out on him, he dies and then he overcomes through his victory the grave and defeated death and the devil himself. It is a victory that is accomplished through the self-sacrifice of Jesus in my place and in yours. The response, though, is, is always the part that we tend to miss. Here's good news, and then you walk away. Don't do that. You gotta talk about what, do you, what am I supposed to do in response to that? So we said this is who God is. The problem is man in his sin. We say what Jesus has done on the cross by dying in our place, how must I respond? Or the Reformation question, what must I do to be saved? Answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. When you believe, all that is yours becomes Christ. Your sin is imputed and given to him. And when you believe all that is his, his righteousness accomplished on the cross is given to you. And so the gospel is this. God is your maker and you are accountable to him. You have sinned and are deserving of judgment. Christ has died on the cross in your place and is resurrected from the dead. And finally, will you give himself, yourself today to him by believing in faith? When I sit down with candidates, friends, for uh, new membership at Bethesda, if you haven't done that, I want to recommend that to you. And as we sit down, I always ask the question. I say, I want you to imagine that you and I are sitting at a train station, and as we're there um, at the train station, uh, my train is going to be coming in about two minutes. We've been having a good conversation, and I go, my, my train is coming in two minutes. You've been talking about Jesus. There seems like something about you that I really should know about. What is this gospel? Would you be able, in less than two minutes, to give a clear articulation of the gospel message? Or would you go, I know it if somebody else said it, and I could agree with it, but I'm not sure I could do it myself. Friend, you should be able to do it. And so, I want you to remember this. The gospel is not your testimony. People confuse that all the time. The gospel is not your testimony. Your testimony, yes, is a story about what Christ has done in your life. But I know that I am not the only one that has heard someone get baptized and give their testimony beforehand, and I didn't hear anything about the cross in there. I didn't hear anything about sin, and I didn't hear anything about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. 
The gospel message must be proclaimed. You can supplement that with your story about how the gospel came into your life. You should think about how to tell your testimony and load the gospel in there. But don't think that just telling this timeline of your own story is enough. You have to proclaim Christ and him crucified and what he's done for us. At Bethesda, friends, I want you to know this is, if you're a guest with us this morning, this is the message that we believe is the most important message of all time. And for those of us who have been on mission, that great commission to make disciples, we have seen the joy of seeing others who are far from God come into the household of God. Man, when new converts come into the household of God, it is like lifeblood to all of us, just getting excited and being reminded, oh yeah, that's what happened with me. I remember how that happened to me at the first, and now I see it happening in you. It gives us an excitement to know we have the greatest message of all time. We didn't deserve it, and yet we get to freely proclaim it. God, sin, Jesus, response. It's an easy way. It's not the only way but I would give that to you that you would hold on to. So the next time you will know when someone says, tell me, what must I do to be saved? You can answer clearly. This is the message of the church. And yet I know that that doesn't always translate to a gospel culture in our churches. Our third point, go to Galatians 2 now. Here's what we must understand if the gospel is powerful enough to save souls, it should be powerful enough to transform the one community whose mandate is to proclaim this message. Oftentimes, that is not the case. I'll show you what I mean. Ray Ortland, in his book, The Gospel, we have it out on the shelf by the library for you if you would like to use it, says this. A common objection to the gospel is this. Look at your churches. Nothing else needs to be said, right? A doubter can find a reason to disregard the truth claims of the gospel just by looking at the relational tone of our churches. And why not? It's in our churches that the gospel is field tested for real life. If people want to know what the gospel creates, are they being unfair to look at the church? I don't think so. Consider a parallel. If I want to examine Marxism, I can read 2,000 tedious pages of Das Kapital from Karl Marx. Or I can look at the countries that have practiced Marxism and put it to work. The Soviet Union, for example, collapsed in 1991 under the weight of its own tragic stupidity. What went wrong? Did the Soviets fail to live by their Marxism? No. It was their faithfulness, faithfulness to Marxism that undid them in a similar way you can consider Christianity either by earning a PhD in biblical studies or simply by getting up a little earlier. Congratulations, thank you for doing that. Getting earlier next Sunday morning and visiting a church. The gospel should be displayed clearly in our churches. Therefore, how we behave in the household of God matters to everyone around us. If someone never read Romans 1 through 4, but they only read us, would they say, that is something that is worth believing in. They look at the actions of our lives. The trouble is that in too many of our churches, our gospel culture or the lack thereof is not appealing. And I will tell you this, particularly to younger people. I was reading a study from Lifeway in 2019 that was done of young people aged 23 to 30 
and how they had dropped out of church. And the, the qualification for the kind of people they were looking at was someone who had spent one year in high school going to church and then to see what happened to them afterwards. And the numbers were staggering. And the numbers were staggering about how many walked away. By the way, I'm thinking of this now. The ladies have done a great job of putting our pamphlets together out at the information center of all of our college students. You should grab one of those pamphlets and pray for our college students. Here's what the study said for the reason why people walked away from the church in their 20s. What the research tells us may even be more concerning for Protestant churches, it says. There was nothing about the church experience or faith foundation of those teenagers that caused them to seek out a connection to a local church once they entered a new phase of life. They spent, the time they spent with activity in church was simply replaced by something else. I would rather it be that they said there was things about the church they taught that they didn't believe in, so they walked away. But are you hearing what they're saying here? They're saying they found that the church had no bearing on their life when they stopped going and made no difference. What difference does it make to our life? I think Justine and I have uh, close friends, and one of them was lamenting about how her sister had grown up in church, had gone to Awana, had done all the activities, had done all the youth group stuff, and then when she got into her late 20s and early 30s, and she said, you know what, I think I'm going to stop going, she found it made no difference in her life, whether she went or whether she didn't go. There was nothing about the church culture that was so attractive that said, this is better than the world. I know this will likely offend some of you, but maybe the reason, the greater reason our youth walk away from the church today isn't because of the big bad science professor teaching evolution at the college level, but it's because they looked at you and I and they saw that, that, that we lacked salt and we were not the light of the world. And they saw the bickering, infighting, worthless preoccupation with irreverent, silly myths that do not matter and a lack of grace. Maybe that's more the reason why. Maybe because they looked at what they saw when they were in high school and said, what difference does it make now? We get one shot while they're here. You can believe right gospel doctrine and have a messed up church culture still. Ortland puts it this way. I'll put this on the screen. Right gospel doctrine plus an anti-gospel culture equals a denial of the gospel. I want to show you a biblical example of this. Paul throws down the gauntlet in Galatians. One day we will go through Galatians. And in verse 11, he speaks against Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came back, he, when he, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically among, along with him, so that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so Paul rebukes Peter for this reason. Peter, who was Jewish, the first person to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, see Acts 10, had given up his kosher food laws and was eating freely with the Gentiles. 
But when he heard that certain men from James were coming, according to Thomas Schreiner, there were unbelief. Likely what happened was that unbelieving Jews from the circumcision party, there was a fear there that if they found out and if they saw what was going on, that they would want to persecute Peter and the Jews who were not upholding the law. And so Peter reverts back to his old life under an old covenant that had died instead of living in the new ones. And so Paul rebukes Peter publicly. By the way, when should you rebuke somebody publicly? Not always. You rebuke, rebuke them publicly when they sin publicly. And that's what we have here. Peter, who preached the sermon that launched the church, Paul says his conduct was not in step with the gospel. What a thing to say. And his problem was is that Peter had added to the gospel. And he was in effect saying Christ's death on the cross needed to be supplemented. It wasn't enough. And I just want to say to you, friends, the gospel does not need our own cleverness. It does not need to be added to. It is sufficient enough to save in and of itself. And yet when we fall into this, we who are prone to basing our identity off of our own accomplishments, the church becomes a stench to ourselves and to the world around us. And I just want you to listen to me. The world is already, already very good at living by justification by works. What do you think cancel culture is? I, I brought this up before. What in the world do you think cancel culture is? Someone does something that doesn't fit the, the cultural norms, whether that's a nobody or whether that's a celebrity or anybody else in between, and everybody picks up rocks to throw at that person, get that person to lose their job, get them off social media, shame and embarrass them, and what is essentially happening is they're going after that person who does not fit that secular creed. This is called virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is what happens when you say, look at me and the good things that I am doing as I perhaps throw stones at somebody else. It is the world who is very easy, it's very easy for them to throw rocks and say, look at me and how I am not like that sinner. Sin, of course, is defined in a different way. It is self-justification by a secular creed in order to win the approval of a godless society. And so the world already has justification by works. The world needs us to live by justification, by faith that leads to freedom and leads to the grace that we have in faith through Christ. Only we can be salt and light for them. I saw a video, and I thought, what's the best way to describe this to you? I want to show you a video of a guy named John, um, and he was a gangster turned Christian from New York City. And I want you to see if the gospel radiates in this man's life and what it would mean if we were like this as well. Go ahead and play the video. What's the craziest thing you found? Gold. Gold and cash. Cartier watches, all kinds of stuff. Diamonds, everything. There's nothing you can't find in New York City. So the way this industry works is people who have nothing go and they pick up the cans and bottles. Then we call a truck. So this truck goes and the driver gets one penny that he collects per bottle. Then the company that picks up the bottles from him gets eight and a half cents. How much do you make? Anywhere from four to $800 a week. You know, it sounds foolish, but what I do is I take the pot and pan on a Saturday and Sunday, I'll, go, I'll be in uh, Jackson Heights, and I'll go sell it for five, seven dollars. So I make another thousand dollars every weekend from the stuff I find during the week. <laughs> I have to laugh because 
I've been doing it for so long, I've been living off of it. So in a week you have a couple grand maybe? 14, 15, 18, depends on the week. It depends on the weather. Because if I could be out in the summer day every day, I would sell all day every day. I'd make 3,000 a week. Easy, easy. You grew up in New York? I grew up in New York, grew up in Queens. Met my wife down here, had three beautiful babies with her. Came up, involved in some not too good business. And I uh, got in trouble, got locked up, lost my wife and kids. So that's why I'm in this mess picking up It must up have cans. been very illegal. Was it like the FBI or something that got involved? The FBI got me. Uh, I was smuggling drugs, marijuana. Just marijuana? Just marijuana. And people. Oh, and people. Yeah. Okay. That's the real money. Millions and millions of dollars. We used to drive boats to the Bahamas, the Bimini, different islands, and bring them over to the United States. How'd you get caught? I got ratted on. Somebody told on me. So they got off of probation and I got 10 years. Do you regret anything? Oh, yeah, I regret everything. Lost my wife and kids. I didn't get to see any of the grandchildren be born. I missed a lot of stuff, man. You seem to be able to hold that pain together pretty well, though. You don't. What am I going to do? I got no more tears. I'm all cried out. Now all I do is I can only be joyful and laugh and have a good life because it's soon going to end. I'm 60. What were you like in the past? A little crazy, a little reckless. I used to have big muscles and great hair, and girls thought I was cute. So I took advantage of all of that. And, and uh, it's not the right way to be. So now I'm a Christian. I do the right thing. I do my very best to walk properly, to love the others, you know? Milton, I didn't expect to see you here. Tell me about your relationship with God. Woo! So there's a great scripture in the Word of God from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says, for God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. What that means to me is before Genesis 1-1, he had already chosen those who he chose. I was called in June of 1993. I gave my life to the Lord. I was in jail. The three ladies came from the Bronx to preach. I just felt led in my spirit to say, okay, I, I, I think you're telling the truth. I agree. I'll accept. Since 1993, which is 30 years ago, I've screwed up a million times. I've been used of God a million times, but I've screwed up a million times. And I've come to the conclusion after 30 years that truly, truly God knew who I was and what I was gonna do and what I was gonna become. And he knew I would pick up cans one day before it ever happened. That scripture helps me to realize that when I fail, you know, don't please or do the things of God. He still loves me, he still cares for me because he chose me in Christ. He seated me at his right hand in heavenly places. I'm seated there right now, whether I deserve it or not. Is that hope you have for the future, something you hold on to now? It's difficult, but I've seen so many miracles and so many spiritual things that I firmly with all my heart believe that God is real. And therefore, I believe his promises in the word and I stand on them. I don't deserve it, but thank God for his grace, you know? Hola, Amanda. That's my friend Amanda. Eric, Hi. it didn't come out yet, love. Count your stuff. Milton's coming back in 15 minutes. John, here's a question for you. Talk to me. When you get to heaven, what are you going to ask God? I, why'd you choose me? <laughs> like, who am I that you, cho <laughs> you chose me? <laughs> so I can walk on the streets made of gold. You got a house with me up there? Look at those streams and rivers and angels. Oh, it's good to go. I'd be so I couldn't stop smiling down here. I'm gonna stop smiling up there. <laughs> what do you think he would say of you? You could have did so much better. I had so much more for you. You big dummy. <laughs> what do you have to say to someone who's trying to believe in God but can't? Simplest answer ever. I heard it from a young boy. God, 15 seconds of your time. 
Bow down and say, Lord, if you're real, make yourself real to me. Speak to me. I could keep you here all day, Eric, with stories. My God has been great to me. And I appreciate you coming around to encourage me and invigorate me again about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> How we doing, ladies? How's life? Great. So I watched that this week, and I just, I just couldn't help but think to myself, that is someone who the gospel message has impacted them and then changed everything. Someone who was really on the wrong path. And I just thought, what, what if we actually let the joy of what Christ has done radiate, radiate out for us? I want you to know that there are some of you here today who you are thinking about coming to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's a, there are those of you who have just began, and the seed is this small. I want you to know that we who have been in church for quite a while, we need you because we need to see the joy of what God can do through you be a blessing to us. We need you. What if, like this man, we let our doctrinal convictions and what Christ has really done reorient our hearts every single week with all of its promises to fulfill us and to fill us for the life to come with hope for the life to come this good news that sustains us despite the sorrows that we may encounter Justine's grandmother just passed away a few days ago and I will be doing the funeral on Wednesday and I look forward to looking my father-in-law in the eyes and saying speaking about the hope of the gospel, that it was unexpected that his mother, his father passed away. It was unexpected that his mother has passed away when it happened. But it will be expected when we see Jesus face to face because of what he did for us on the cross and knowing about the hope that we have to come. What if we let this gospel change our culture and how we live in the here and now? I think we would find that our greatest enemy is not the devil himself, but it is us who need to get out of our own way. And we would find that when we get out of our own way and we humble ourselves before the Lord and see our sin before him, he will see us who encounters us day by day. He will still look us in the eye and say, my grace is sufficient for you. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the gospel that the church preaches. Let it also be the gospel that shapes our culture here. Or as the world is truly begging for us to do, to practice what we preach. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.